So this afternoon, I assume things went okay. People came and went only when the bell rang. It made sense. The bells got rung. <laughs> okay. So tonight I'd like to give you some context for the jhanas, see where they fit into the Buddha's teachings. Thus have I heard, two and a half thousand years ago in northern India, there lived a young man named Siddhartha Gotama, who wanted to know what to do about old age, sickness, and death. He wanted to know so strongly that he left his home and headed south to the Ganges River Valley where he went to seek his spiritual fortune. Now, India at that time was a very amazing place. The agricultural economy had reached such a state that it was producing a surplus of food. Not everybody had to work to feed themselves. There was some left over. And one of the ways in which the surplus food was used was to support full-time spiritual seekers. So the woods of India were literally crawling with spiritual seekers. Of course, one of the other things they did with this surplus of food was have standing armies. You get the good with the bad. So anyhow, Siddhartha Gotama headed south to the Ganges River Valley and realizing that if he was going to figure out what to do about old age, sickness, and death, he needed some teacher to help him. So he studied with Udaka, with Alara Kalama. Alara Kalama taught him his doctrine and also taught him meditation practices up to and including the seventh jhana. Siddhartha Gotama was a very good student and quickly learned the doctrine and the practices. And Alara Kalama was so impressed that he offered Siddhartha Gotama to co-lead the group of followers. But Siddhartha Gotama wanted to know what to do about old age, sickness, and death, and all he'd learned was seven jhanas, so he left. And he sought another teacher, Udaka Ramaputta, Udaka the son of Rama. And he learned Rama's doctrine, and he learned the eighth jhana. And Udaka Ramaputta was so impressed, he offered Siddhartha Gotama the leadership of the group. But Siddhartha Gotama wanted to know what to do about old age, sickness, and death, and had only learned the eighth jhana. So he left. And he began practicing austerity practices. He did things like living on one grain of rice a day. And what he learned was that if you live on one grain of rice a day, you get very skinny you have a tendency to fall over. He tried holding his breath for as long as he could. And what he discovered was that if you hold your breath a lot, it gives you headaches. 
After six years of seeking, since he'd left his home, he realized that the austerity practices were not answering his questions. And since he was in such an emaciated state that it was actually difficult to do anything, he decided that it was time to start eating regular food again. There were five ascetics who were practicing with him. And when they saw that Siddhartha Gotama was eating regular food, well, they thought he had given up the spiritual path. And so they left. But Siddhartha Gotama hadn't given up the spiritual path. He was just seeking something that was actually going to work and answer his questions. In trying to figure out what to do, he remembered an incident from his childhood. The commentaries say it was the plowing ceremony. At that time in India, and even today in Asia, when it's time for the first plowing, the leader, the king or the leader of the tribe, would plow the first furrow. Well, now, if you've been to Asia, you know if they have a ceremony, they don't get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and at 6.15 plow the furrow and be done with it. It's a festival. It goes on all day. And Siddhartha Gotama, who at that time was probably about 12 years old, got bored with the festivities and went and sat under a rose apple tree and fell into a state of meditation and entered the first jhana. And when it came time for the plowing to take place, he was supposed to help his father, sort of a sign that he was the future leader of the Sakyan, the Shakyan clan. But he was nowhere to be found. And so his father sent a minister to seek him. And the minister found him sitting under that rose apple tree in an obviously altered state, and was reluctant to bother him. So he went back and told the king, and the king looked at his son and said, ah, he can help next year. So now, some 25 years later, Siddhartha Gotama remembers this incident, this entering the first jhana. And he thinks, could this be the way to enlightenment? And he ponders the experience of the first jhana. The pleasure that he experienced there was not sensual pleasure. It was a pure kind of pleasure. And then he thought, yes, this is the way to enlightenment. And so he began eating food and practicing jhanas and basically getting himself in shape. One day, the day before the night of the full moon, he's sitting under a tree near the Nairanjaya River, not far from the city of Gaia. And a woman approaches him and says, Oh, please wait, I have a present for you. You see, the tree that he'd chosen to sit under was known in the neighborhood as the residence of a fertility deva. And this woman had prayed to the fertility deva a year earlier that she might have a child, and she now had a son, and she assumed that Siddhartha Gotama was the fertility deva. 
And so she wanted to make an offering of thanks. Now she owned a herd of cows, and the commentaries tell us that she went home and she milked a hundred cows and then gave that milk to ten cows and then milked those ten cows and gave that milk to one cow and then milked that one cow and out came pure cream. And she used the cream to make rice pudding. And she took it to the fertility deva in a golden bowl and presented it as thanks. Well now Siddhartha Gautama is sitting there. It's the night of the full moon in May, which means it's his birthday. This woman that he's never met before gives him the best food he's eaten in six years. And he thinks, this is a good night for striving. And he made the resolution that he would sit there until he either figured out what to do about old age, sickness, and death, or the flesh rotted from his bones. He started that night of meditation by entering the jhanas. One, two, three, four. And then when his mind was concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, he inclined and directed to remembering past lives. That was the first watch of the night, the first four hours of the night. In the second watch of the night, he took his concentrated mind and inclined and directed it to seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. And in the third watch of the night, he formulated what we know as the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path by investigating dependent origination. And when the sun came up the next morning, he was a changed person. He had made a breakthrough in consciousness and now knew what to do about old age, sickness, and death. He was awake. He was a Buddha. It says that he spent the next week enjoying the bliss of enlightenment. And he spent the next six weeks after that in the vicinity of what we call the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, pondering what to do next. You see, what he had discovered was very subtle not an easy thing for anyone to understand. And at first his mind was disinclined to teach, thinking that nobody will understand this. It is said that one of the highest of the Brahma gods, realizing that the Buddha was disinclined to teach, thought, oh, the world will be lost. And as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or flex it, he disappeared from the highest of the heavens and appeared on earth before the Buddha and got down on bended knee and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and humans. He said, there are some people with little dust in their eyes. They will understand what you have come to understand. Well, the Buddha thought about it, and yes, there were some people who had little dust in their eyes. Perhaps they would understand. Maybe he should try to teach. 
And this highest of the Brahma gods, realizing that the Buddha was going to teach as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or flex it, disappeared from the human realm and reappeared in the highest of the heavenly realms. The Buddha pondered who should he first try and teach. He thought about his two teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. They had little dust in their eyes, but unfortunately, both had recently died. And then he thought about his five companions, the ones that had left him because he was eating. And he thought, well, they have little dust in their eyes. Perhaps they will understand. Now, when you get to be a Buddha, you have some supernormal powers. You have the eye of a Buddha. And so he was able to quickly determine that his five friends had headed west near the city of Benares at the village of Sarnath in the park of the seers at Isipatana. And so he set out and wandered off in that direction. And while he was traveling that way, he encountered someone else going the opposite direction. And this person said to him, Excuse me, your countenance is very clear. You're obviously a spiritual seeker. Who is your teacher? And the Buddha said, I have no teacher. I'm awake. And the other traveler said, well, good for you, and passed by on the other side. The Buddha's first foray into teaching didn't go very well. But he persisted, and eventually he came to the deer park at Isipatana, and his five former companions saw him coming in the distance. And they said, oh, look, it's Sid the Slacker. Well, we'll let him sit with us, but you know we won't show him any respect. But as he drew near, his countenance was very radiant, and one of them got up and went to take his robe and bowl, and another prepared water for him to wash his feet, and another prepared a seat for him to sit on. And after he'd washed his feet and exchanged courtesies with his friends, he said, well, guys, I figured it out. I know what to do about old age, sickness, and death. And they laughed at him. They said, you didn't figure nothing out. We saw you. You were eaten. He said, no, no, no. I really did figure it out. And they said, there's no way, man. You gave up the spiritual path. He said, no. Have I ever talked to you like this before? Well, they had to admit he hadn't. He said, listen. And what he taught them was what we know as the first sermon, the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana Sutta, the setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma. And in that sutta, he said there are four ennobling truths. Four truths that, if you understand them, will make you noble. Usually it's translated as noble truths, but more accurately it would be ennobling truths. The first of these ennobling truths is dukkha happens. Now in America they used to put that on bumper stickers. Well, they used an Anglo-Saxon word of four letters, but same idea. Stuff goes wrong. Things don't work right. Dukkha happens. This is what it means to be incarnated into this world. 
Things go along just fine and then they break down and fall apart. It's an inescapable fact. You grow old, your body wears out, you eventually die. Same thing happens to everybody you love. Same thing happens to your car and your refrigerator and your house. All of this stuff has a tendency to turn into dukkha. Modern physics has made the same discovery. One way that modern physics expresses this is the three laws of thermodynamics. Thermodynamics describes what happens when there's a heat exchange. And if you build an engine, like the motor in your car, there's a heat exchange that's going on. And the three laws of thermodynamics could be expressed as you can't win, you can only lose or break even. Second law, you can only break even at absolute zero. Third law, you can't reach absolute zero. It's always going to be a losing proposition. This is why nobody can build a perpetual motion machine. There's just too much friction and loss going on. Another way in which modern physics points out that dukkha happens is the teaching on entropy. Entropy says that things have a tendency to go from a state of order to disorder. If I pick up a glass and I drop it on a hard floor, it breaks into pieces. If I pick up the pieces and I drop them on the floor, not very likely going to break into a glass. Right? Things go from an order, nicely ordered glass, to disorder, shards everywhere. This is fairly easy to understand. If, for example, I had a copy of War and Peace, a loose-leaf copy, all thousand pages, right? I open the book and I pull out the thousand pages and I throw them up into the air. And they come fluttering down, right? And then I gather them up, right? Get them all back, nice, neat stack. What are the odds they're going to be in the right order? Well, there's one way they can be orderly, and there's, I don't even know. I'm a mathematician, and I can't even figure it out. Millions of ways they can be out of order. Anytime anything changes, and things do have a tendency to change, they can change to be orderly, but the odds are they're more likely to change to be Disorderly, just like the pages are going to come fluttering down in a disorderly fashion rather than an orderly fashion. So this is what happens. We change. The car changes. The refrigerator changes. All of this stuff is changing all the time. Some of it slowly, but it's definitely changing in the direction of more disorder. And that disorder is generally experienced as dukkha. Dukkha, <laughs> dukkha could be translated literally as a dirty hole, perhaps more accurately as a bad space. Um, what it refers to is things that are less than perfect. 
Dukkha covers everything from the death of someone you love to a hangnail. It's often translated as suffering, and indeed it does encompass suffering, but it encompasses much more than just suffering. A better translation would be unsatisfactoriness. I've also seen it translated as stress. That works well. But there's no English word that really captures the range of meaning of dukkha, so I'm going to leave it untranslated. You're smart people. You can understand dukkha means stuff goes wrong. So the first noble truth, the first ennobling truth, is to recognize this is the way the universe is put together. Things go from a state of order to disorder. Things are less than perfect. Now the second of these ennobling truths is the cause of this dukkha. The Buddha says the dukkha has one cause only, and that is craving. The word that he used is tanha, which could be literally translated as thirst. But there are actually two words in Pali that could be translated as thirst. And tanha has the sense of an unquenchable thirst. You've got to have some water. You, you really got to have it. Sometimes people say that dukkha is caused by desire. But I think craving is a better word to use. If you desire something and it doesn't happen and it's no big deal, there's no dukkha, right? So I might like to, I might desire that tomorrow at lunch they provide chocolate brownies. And if they don't, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'll eat an orange, no problem, right? But if I'm really craving something, I really seriously want it, and it doesn't happen, that's dukkha. There are basically three kinds of craving. There's the craving for sense pleasures. We want to see nice sights, hear nice sounds, smell good smells, taste delicious things, touch pleasant textures, and think nice thoughts, emote nice emotions. So we want these sense pleasures to be nice. So we crave the nice sounds and sights and thoughts. The second kind of craving is, well, the Pali word is bhava, and the third kind is vibhava, the opposite of bhava. Bhava is translated as becoming or existence or being and having. So the craving for existence would be the strongest form of bhava. I mean, that craving for existence is part of what keeps us alive. And then vibhava would be the opposite, the craving for non-existence. Some people actually do commit suicide. But these are the extremes, and there's a whole lot in between, I think, that is referred to here. And that's when the translation works better as craving for being and having, or not being and not having. 
So craving for being and having, I want to be wealthy, I want to have a Ferrari. Or not being and not having, I don't want to be sick, I don't want to have a cold. So everything from existence and non-existence, but all the things in between, plus the craving for sense pleasures. These are the cravings. And if we get our craving satisfied, it feels really nice. And we assume it was the satisfying of the craving that makes us feel nice. But there's another possibility. It could be that the satisfying of the craving stops the craving. And it's the stopping of craving that makes things feel nice. And this is precisely what the Buddha says in the third ennobling truth. This is the cessation of dukkha. If you don't want dukkha, don't crave. Sort of like that old joke, doctor, when I do this, it hurts. Don't do that. Right? So if you don't like dukkha, don't do the craving bit. Well, I can sit up here and tell you, don't crave. You'll be much happier. Can you stop craving just because I said so? I mean, if the Buddha was sitting up here himself and he told you, don't crave, could you stop it? No, it's a little bit ingrained. And we need to learn to stop craving. And that's the fourth of these ennobling truths. The way of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. The way of practice that enables us to learn how to stop craving. These four ennobling truths are laid out very much like an Ayurvedic medical diagnosis. The first one is the name of the disease. In this case, the disease is dukkha, dis-ease. It fits. The second ennobling truth is the cause of the disease, craving. The third ennobling truth is the prognosis for the disease. And in this case, we get a good prognosis. It's curable. And then the fourth ennobling truth is the prescription to take to the pharmacist. But it's not a piece of paper. It's practices that you have to do. And you're the pharmacist. You have to fulfill the prescription. These practices are eight in number, the Noble Eightfold Path. And they are eight things to be done simultaneously. It's not that you do the first one and when you get it perfected, then you can move on to the second. You need to work on all eight of them all the time. It's an eight-lane highway and you get to drive in all the lanes. The first of the ennobling truths, uh, the first of the Eightfold Path, is right view. Now, as I said, the word sama, samaditi in this case, the word sama usually is translated as right, but a more appropriate translation would be appropriate, so appropriate view. Kind of interesting that view 
would be the first on the Eightfold Path. The Buddhist teachings were an oral tradition for several hundred years after his death. Writing was known at the time of the Buddha, but one, they didn't have paper, so writing was an expensive thing to do. And it was also felt that you should memorize spiritual teachings rather than write them down. If you memorized them, you had them at hand and you could apply them. Writing was for accountants. How many sheep did the king own? Things like that. So this was an oral tradition for many hundreds of years. And then in Sri Lanka, they realized that there was danger of the tradition being lost, and so they began to write it down. They wrote it down on ola leaves, leaves of a palm, something like a banana leaf. And they would scratch the letters into a dried ola leaf and then smear the leaf when they were done with some berry juice that made an ink and then wipe off the excess and the scratched areas would contain the dark ink and it would wipe away from everything else. And then they would stack the leaves up and put them in a cover and have a book. We still refer to the leaves of a book today. This is where it comes from. So they wrote the Buddha's teachings down, but they didn't write them all down at once. This happened over an extended period. And so some of the teachings because of the way the Pali is, enables the scholars to say, oh, this was written down earlier and this was written down later. I mean, you can tell the difference between early 20th century English and early 21st century English. So the scholars have managed to put the suttas in order in terms of how early they were written down. One of the earliest collections is known as the Sutta Nipata, It's a collection of a number of discourses. And the overriding theme of the Sutta Nipata is not holding to fixed views. This makes sense. If you've got a fixed view, you don't have an open mind. If you've got a fixed view and you're not enlightened right now, and you're not willing to let go of your fixed view... You ain't going to get enlightened. You're not going to get anywhere. An open mind is an absolute essential on the spiritual path. So it's interesting that right view or appropriate view would be the first of the Eightfold Path. So what is right view? Understanding this is dukkha. Understanding this is the origin of dukkha. Understanding, this is the cessation of dukkha. Understanding, this is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. In other words, the Four Noble Truths. Now it's interesting, we're talking about the Four Noble Truths and we got to the Fourth Truth and we're talking about the first thing on the Eightfold Path and there we find the Four Noble Truths again. The Buddha's teaching is not strictly linear. Here we see it being holographic. The Buddha's teaching is presented in a linear fashion. If you're speaking, the words come out one after the other. 
it, it, there's no way to do it other than in a linear fashion in terms of presentation. But if you only understand what the Buddha is teaching in a linear way, you're going to miss the depths of it. And so we, here we have an example of the Buddha's teaching being holographic. There are many places where you can take a teaching and you pick a spot and you dig down and you really get an understanding of it and you find the whole teaching right there in that little spot. Now, other places in the suttas, the Buddha sometimes explains right view to be dependent origination. Do we have a conflict here? Well, actually not. The first three of the Four Noble Truths are actually summaries of some of the key points of dependent origination. Now, I don't want to try and go into dependent origination in depth tonight. We don't have enough time. And besides, I got four talks coming up later this week on dependent origination, so I'll save them for then. But dependent origination is the detailed explanation, and the Four Noble Truths hits the high points, or at least the first three ennobling truths, point to the high points of dependent origination. And the fourth, the Eightfold Path, the way to practice so that you can penetrate this teaching to its depths. The second on the Eightfold Path is appropriate intention. Sometimes translated as right thought, but thought is not as good. It's, it's intention. And what are right intentions? Intentions of renunciation, intentions of non-ill will, intentions of harmlessness. Renunciation. Well, there's a loaded word. Most people's reaction to renunciation is, get your hands off my stuff. As lay people, we have a lot of stuff. We are inundated with stuff. I mean, when you go home, take a look at all the stuff you have. you got closets full of stuff. If it's your birthday and your friends give you some new stuff, the first job you have is trying to figure out what to do with the new stuff. The closets are full. There's pictures on all the walls. What are you going to do with this stuff? Sometimes you get so much stuff you can't even put your car in the garage. Right? It's overflowing with stuff. In fact, it gets to be so bad you have to go rent a room in some other building to store the stuff that you can't keep in your flat or your house, right? We are inundated with stuff. For lay people, one of the first things about renunciation is coming to terms with your stuff. You got lots of it. Do you really need all this stuff? I mean, how many clothes can you wear at one time? My teacher, Ayakema, said that it would be a good thing if about every six months you would go through your closets and anything you haven't worn or used in the past six months, give it to charity. It's not going to come back in style. You're not going to lose those pounds. All right? Just give it away. Keep your stuff to a minimum as best you can. 
Now, if we were monastics, we'd be limited to a bowl and three robes and maybe a pair of sandals and not much else. But as lay people, it is necessary to have some stuff. But it really is important to come to terms with your stuff. When you move house, do you ever discover a box from the last time you moved house that you haven't unpacked yet? What do you do with that box? Do you dump it in the rubbish? No, of course, you move it to the new place. Let it sit there unpacked. So, intentions of letting go. I mentioned last night that letting go is a really important part of the spiritual path, the essence of the path. And renunciation is the practice of letting go. There's a book in the Tibetan tradition called Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand. And it's true. We all do have liberation in the palm of our hands. You can see it. Make a fist. Hold it up in front of your face. Come on, everybody. All right, right in front of your face. You want to see liberation? Look at the palm of your hand. That's how you get there, right? You got to let go. And then the other two right intentions, non-ill will and harmlessness, or to put them in a positive frame, love and compassion. As I said last night, we are vastly interconnected. It helps to navigate the universe if you operate in harmony with the way the universe is put together. And if we are vastly interconnected, interacting with others with intentions of love and compassion is in harmony with the way the universe is put together. So these should be our motivations, to let go and to act with love and compassion. The letting go, of course, remember this, grabbing hold, is what causes dukkha. That's what we do when we crave. We want to get. To let go is to go in the opposite direction. These first two on the Eightfold Path are the wisdom aspect of the path. And the next three are the morality or virtue aspect. The next one is right speech, appropriate speech. I talked about that last night. Appropriate speech is refraining from lying, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from divisive speech, and refraining from frivolous speech, gossip and idle chatter. In some of the suttas, the Buddha gave uh, guidelines as to what he considered to be frivolous speech, unedifying conversations is how it's usually translated. He said those were conversations about kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, food, drink, beds, clothing, garlands, perfume, relatives, carriages, villages, towns, cities, countries. Women or men, heroes, street and well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, 
speculations about land and sea, talk of being and non-being. He didn't leave a lot to talk about. Now, admittedly, this was given to the monks and nuns, but still, it's an interesting list. Kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars. That's the six o'clock news, right? I mean, in America, we have the six o'clock dukkha report, right? Today, in Iraq, there was much dukkha. And in Afghanistan, there was dukkha. And on Wall Street, there was dukkha. And right here in our hometown, just down the block, there was dukkha, right? This is kings and ministers and all that other stuff. Now, it is important to know what's going on in the world, but how much do you need to immerse yourself in that? And then food, drink, beds, clothing, garlands, perfumes. Uh, go into any news agent and take a look at the number of magazines you can find that will discuss those topics. Quite a lot. Uh, relatives, oh, there's a good topic. Um, carriages, uh, Corvettes and Ferraris, right? We have different sorts of carriages, but we talk about our modes of transportation. Villages, towns, cities, countries, you know, where are you going to go on your holiday this year? Uh, men or women, very popular topics. Heroes, what's that? Uh, football stars and pop stars. Um, street and well gossip. I guess that's water cooler gossip, right? You know, you take a break at work and there's your friend and you just start talking about whatever. What the Buddha suggested that we talk about was the Dharma. But yes, yeah, sometimes as lay people, we encounter others that talking about the Dharma is just probably not going to work too well. And so you do have to engage in some of these topics. I have a couple friends at work that are really into sports. And, you know, I'm into sports too. And so when I meet them at the water cooler, then we're talking about baseball or football or whatever. Um, if you wind up talking about one of these topics, at least be aware that you're talking about a topic that the Buddha referred to as an unedifying conversation. And if you find an opening to move the conversation to a higher level, by all means, take it. But don't go proselytizing. That won't go over well at all. And then last night we talked about the truth, not causing divisions, using language that's easy to listen to. The next is right action, and that's defined as not killing, not taking what's not given, and not doing sexual misconduct. So in two of the Eightfold Path, we have four of the five precepts. You might be wondering about the fifth precept on intoxicants. Remember, he's giving this talk 
to five guys been living in the woods on a one grain of rice a day. No worries about them doing intoxicants. In fact, the precept on intoxicants didn't come along until the Buddha had lay followers. And then he had to make up that one. And the third of the virtue is right livelihood. And what is right livelihood? Any livelihood that's not wrong livelihood. Okay, so what's wrong livelihood? Any livelihood that involves the breaking of one of the five precepts or encouraging someone else to break one of the five precepts. So even if you don't drink but you work in a liquor store, that's considered breaking the fifth precept or it's considered encouraging someone to break the fifth precept so it wouldn't be considered right livelihood. There are some livelihoods that are listed as strictly forbidden, uh, being a mercenary, being a slave trader, dealing in weapons, being a gambler, uh, being a butcher. But basically, think about what you do to make a living. Does it involve breaking the precepts? If it doesn't, you're okay. If it does or it encourages someone else to, Oh, right livelihood is a good thing to have. we got enough problems on this planet. So those are the virtue aspects of the path. The last three are the concentration aspects. And the first of these is right effort. And that's the four great efforts, which are to make an unwholesome state of mind which has arisen go away to make an unwholesome state of mind that has not arisen, not arise. To make a wholesome state of mind which has not arisen to arise. And to make a wholesome state of mind which has arisen continue and come to perfection. I'll give you an example. You're driving down the motorway and some idiot cuts you off, almost causes an accident. And you find yourself shouting four-letter words at your windscreen. An unwholesome state of mind has arisen. All right, so you recognize this. Now, this unwholesome state of mind, anger, has the antidote of metta, love and compassion. And so you do a little metta for this person. May you arrive safely at your destination. May you even learn to drive someday. <laughs> All right? Okay, so you got that calmed down. You're driving down the motorway and some other idiot cuts you off and you're just about ready to start screaming four-letter words at your windscreen. And you realize this is an unwholesome state of mind. It doesn't do any good. And so you start practicing metta instead. Uh, may you learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. So you prevented the arising of an unwholesome state of mind. And you also did it by making an unarisen wholesome state of mind arise, this metta. So why not keep it around and bring it to perfection? You can send metta to everybody on the motorway. May we all arrive safely at our destinations. These are the four great efforts. So you want to pay attention to your mind states and deal with them appropriately. The seventh on the Eightfold Path 
is right mindfulness. And that's defined as the four foundations of mindfulness, the four arenas or areas of which you should be mindful. These are mindfulness of the body, the physical body, mindfulness of Vedana. Vedana means the initial reaction to a sense contact. And there are three possibilities, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Vedana is usually translated as feelings, and that's a particularly pathetic translation, a very confusing translation, because we think of feelings as emotions, and Vedana does not mean emotions. It means this initial reaction towards it, away from it, don't care. The third foundation of mindfulness is citta, usually translated as mind, more accurately as heart-mind. But actually in the third foundation, what it means is state of mind. So being mindful of your state of mind. Are you happy, sad, confused, concentrated? What's going on? That's where the emotions would come in. And then the fourth foundation is dharmas. Dharma is a word that has many different meanings. When you see it with a capital D and singular, it means either the teachings of the Buddha or the truth with a capital T. Now, of course, the capital letter is just something the translator is doing to try and help bring out the meaning. Pali was an oral language. They didn't have any letters, let alone capital letters. When you see dharmas with a little d and plural, that tends to mean something like phenomena or things. Sometimes you see it translated as mind objects. I think in the context of the four foundations of mindfulness, it's the fourth foundation, it means phenomena. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, being aware of phenomena as they relate to the Buddha's teachings. We'll go into detail on the four foundations of mindfulness starting day after tomorrow morning. And then the eighth on the Eightfold Path, Samasamadhi, appropriate concentration. And what, O monks, is appropriate concentration? Secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. This is appropriate concentration. So the Buddha is defining the right kind of concentration to practice as the first four jhanas. At the end of this talk... The Buddha looked at the five guys, and one of them, Kandanya by name, got it. He understood. And the Buddha got rather excited. He says, Kandanya, you know, don't you? You know, which in Pali is something like Anya Kandanya. <laughs> and indeed, Kandanya did know. What he knew was all that arises also ceases. And he attained the first level of enlightenment, which is called stream entry. We owe a great debt of gratitude to Kandanya. 
Can you imagine? The Buddha gives this talk. He looks at the five guys and they go, so? <laughs> because nobody's got little dust in their eyes, heads back to the Bodhi tree and hangs out for 45 years in bliss. But no, Kadanya got it. There was the possibility of somebody understanding. It's very clear from the sutta that the Buddha was quite excited about the fact that Kadanya knew. And so he continued to hang around with them and teach them. And over the next few weeks, each of the other of this group of five also attained to stream entry, the first level of enlightenment. And then when he knew their minds were fully prepared, he gave them what we know as the second discourse, the discourse on not-self. And at the end of that discourse, all five of them became totally enlightened. But we'll have to save that for some other time. So, questions, comments? Right, and it's not in one place where he says that. There are multiple places where he defines right concentration as the first four jhanas. So yeah, how come? My guess is that over time, the definition of how much concentration you have to have to be able to call it a jhana kept getting more and more and more, stronger and stronger levels of concentration. Until a thousand years after the Buddha, if you take a look at the Vasudhimaga, the jhanas are described in there, but they're described somewhat differently than what you find in the suttas. Not completely differently, but certainly there's been a huge increase in the amount of concentration that's required to experience the jhanas. My guess is, you know, after the Buddha died, a bunch of guys hanging out in the woods, got no TV, got no women, got nothing to do but practice. Whoever can do these jhanas the best, that sets the standard for the next generation. And whoever could do it the best, that's the next one. And it just kept getting stronger and stronger levels of concentration, which had the effect of making fewer and fewer people able to enter these states. At the time of the Buddha, everybody's doing jhanas. Frequently, the Buddha gives a talk, and then he says to the monks and nuns, there are roots of trees, there are empty huts. Go do jhana. He says, go meditate. But the word that he used is actually based on the word jhana. It's a verb form of jhana. A thousand years later, the Vasudhimaga says, of those who come to meditation, only one in a hundred to one in a thousand can get to access concentration. 
Of those who get to access concentration, only one in a hundred or one in a thousand can get to the first jhana. Of those who can get to the first jhana, it goes on like this until you realize they've defined the jhanas out of existence practically. So when our teachers go to Asia and learn meditation, they're learning the sort of meditation that's being taught there, which is not jhanic meditation because jhanic meditation has been defined now so extreme that almost nobody can do it, especially not these Western hippies coming over, right? Got to give them something easier to do. And so they learn Vipassana techniques, and that's what they brought back. Asian Buddhism or Asian Theravadan Buddhism is principally Vasudhimaga Buddhism. It's based on the Vasudhimaga and the commentaries, which come a thousand years after the Buddha. Some of what you find in there is quite useful. Some of what you find in there is questionable. Some of what you find in there is, let's be kind to just say mythological, okay? But it's not what you find in the suttas. And if you go back and look at the suttas, the jhanas were an integral part, and it was possible for most everybody who was seriously into this, willing to become a monk or a nun, they could learn these states. Today, it's really difficult to find anybody that can even teach them to you. So that's a very long answer to your simple question. And it's just speculation on my part, so... Take it with a grain of salt. I guess I was wondering whether maybe some teachers might be concerned that it could create something that people take as almost too much of a kind of striving on. Yeah. In order to teach the jhanas, you have to be crazy. I mean, (laughs) I'm putting something out here. It sounds quite nice. I'm setting it up. Say, go get it. So there's going to be all this striving towards it. And furthermore, I'm telling you, some of you ain't going to get there. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky because there can be this striving. And if you get there, there can be a tendency to think that's it. Get addicted to it. You know, you meditate so you can get high. Well, that one actually is self-curing because we have short attention spans here in the West and you get over it pretty quickly. But that striving can definitely get in the way. Um, yeah, it's a tricky thing. Um, the reason I'm willing to teach it is because I found them so very helpful for myself. They made a huge difference in my ability to gain insight into what's really going on. Transform my life, not the jhanas, but the insight. But the insight I got was a direct result of having a very concentrated mind. So I'm crazy enough to try and teach it and deal with whatever comes along, including people getting caught in striving and me having to go in an interview and tell back off, relax. Now, the phrase I like to use is relaxed diligence. you got to show up, you got to do the work, but you got to stay relaxed around it. And if you go grasping after it, you're not secluded from sense desires and you ain't going to get it. So so there's no relationship between the sense 
Correct. More or less. There, there can be, there are some insights that come as you experience each jhana. I'm not going to tell you what they are. I'll leave them for you to discover yourself. But most of what happens is that the sensations of the jhanas leave you in a concentrated state, and it's that concentration that enables you to get the insights, not the sensations themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's very definitely a controversy about whether insight is possible without jhana. I would say that at least a large amount of insight is possible without jhana, but I don't know if you can get all the way to enlightenment without jhana. Because you see, we don't have very many enlightened people around to ask How did you get there? Did you use jhanas or not? But certainly I know a lot of people who have not experienced jhanas who have had some very deep insights, some transformative insights. So certainly there is a a large amount of insight that can be gained without jhanas. It's just I think you can get it easier and faster and deeper with a concentrated mind, and the jhanas are a way to get a deeply concentrated mind. It seems as if you're suggesting that you can't get a deeply concentrated mind without jhanas. I can see that there are practices which can lead that way, but I, I, I know other teachers who would say that you can become as concentrated without the jhanas. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true you can become very concentrated without the jhanas, but if you were to take that technique that got you very concentrated and then turn it towards entering the jhanas, I think you'd get even more concentrated. But, yeah. So, yeah, you can get really concentrated. There's no doubt about it. But can you get sufficiently concentrated to become fully enlightened without using the jhanas? I think the only way is to find out, find some people that got fully enlightened without doing that. Of course, finding fully enlightened people is very difficult. If you're not fully enlightened, how the heck are you going to recognize whether somebody else is fully enlightened? You know, it takes one to know one. So, I guess you better get fully enlightened first. And then you can go around, check up on everybody else and see what they did. That, that'd be my recommendation. <laughs> you take the high road. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, once you've learned the jhanas, I would say use half of your meditation period to get concentrated and half for insight. So sit for an hour, 30 minutes getting concentrated, moving into the jhanas, 30 minutes for insight. If you're going to sit for two hours, I'd say the jhanas probably... Half an hour, 45 minutes would be enough. So yeah, it sort of means you got to do long sittings. But in general, concentrate your mind at the beginning of a sitting. Even if you're not doing jhanas, I mean, work up to access concentration. 
and then turn it towards doing the insight practice. And you would do it in every sitting. Now, that's the ideal. You go back out into the unreal world, you deal with your crazy boss and all the stuff that's going on and you're looking at your stock market portfolio which just went. And you sit down to meditate and concentration doesn't show up. Okay, so after halfway through the time, all right, that's all that's happening. Switch the inside. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that even in the very process of reaching access, one needs the intelligence of the intelligence that comes with such pattern. I mean, you have to get to grips with what's going on with your mind and your body and so on and so forth. Right. It's not as if they're yeah. separate. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. Part of it, yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of background that you've got to have. I mean, you know, the requirements for this course were that you already have been on retreat. You already know how to meditate. I mean, I'm not going to give you the basics of how to meditate. I'm just assuming you all know how to do that, that you've gotten some of that information already down. Uh, Yeah, in order to get to access, you're going to have to have some skill with meditation when you sit down to attempt to get to access. And, as you say, those skills come from the Satipatthana Sutta. So, yeah, you do a little insight, you begin to get some concentration, you get a little more insight, you get some more concentration. Now you've got enough concentration for the jhanas. Now you get even more insight. You know, it builds on itself. Right? Last one. Then we're going to need to take a break. Jhanas teaching is about... Um entering deep states of samadhi. Mm-hmm. But he never mentioned jhanas. And, and who is this? He, he never... No, oh, no, his name. Huh? The, the name of the person. Ajahn Ma. Aha. Uh, the monk who lived in Thailand in the early... Mm-hmm. Um, early 20s, maybe. Right. And Ajahn Ma Bua wrote a book about this. Mm-hmm. A- Ajahn Ma, yeah. Yeah. Right, and he, he always talks about deep states of samadhi. He never mentions jhanas. I can't quite understand. I would guess that he was practicing jhanas from several reasons. It's a tradition in Buddhism, so that would be the most likely states that he would be able to learn from anybody in the Buddhist tradition. And two, that's where the mind likes to go, is into these particular states. So I would guess that it's just that he didn't use that word in particular. Or the translator didn't translate that word out of the Thai. They just translated his concentration state as opposed to jhana. So, but I'm pretty sure that Ajahn Man was a jhana practitioner, just from things I've read about him. I get that sense. Okay, so we'll take a short break, and when we come back, I'll do a guided meta. <laughs> 